So I'm feeling a little bit unnerved this morning. I've been sort of studying you now for a month and I've seen that you have a variety of different things on Sundays. You have a worship team and then you have a choir Sunday, you have an instrumental Sunday. And um, today I noticed that you have a question person Sunday. And I'm just a, a little bit unnerved whether that question heckler is going to be involved in my sermon this morning. <laughs> From experience, you know. So I have a question. I'm going to be asking the questions this morning. I have a question for you to think about for just a few moments. And that is, what is the purpose of forgiveness? What is the point of forgiveness? You thinking about it? Do you have in your mind a, an answer to that question? What is the purpose of forgiveness? Forgiveness is a big deal in Christianity, yes? It's a big deal in our lives. So we ought to know what the purpose of it is. What is the point? Do we know the definition? Maybe we don't know the definition of forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is releasing someone from a wrong, canceling a debt. Forgiveness is treating a person who has offended you as if it never happened. Now, that kind of forgiveness that we know about and learn about in the Scriptures comes along with another theological term called reconciliation. The purpose of forgiveness is that we might have a relationship restored, that we might have peace with another person. So how do you make peace with someone you have wronged? Inquiring husbands everywhere want to know. How do you make peace with someone you've wronged? You can't. You can't. The person who is offended must agree to make peace with you. So what if the someone that you have egregiously wronged is God? What then? Is there a way to have a relationship with God? If so, how? How does it happen? So open up your Bibles, if you haven't yet this morning, please, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at three verses in particular today. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. As we answer these questions, what if we have wronged God? Do you know what God has done for you to make it possible for you to be at peace with Him? most important question that you will ever answer in your life is, are you at peace with God? Probably more particularly, is God at peace with you? And before anyone can really answer that question, they need to have a sense of the urgency of their own situation, the crisis of their own situation. That's what the Apostle Paul has sought to do here, is to 
a little bit wading into his letter now of, of significant theology to, to now state to us, do, do you understand how bad it was for you? Do, do you have any idea at all how precarious your situation was before God? We, last week, spent some time together looking at a glorious portrait of Christ that's laid out for us here in verses 15 to 20. How magnificent is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we looked at that. But embedded in that glorious portrait, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly certain that Christ is the key to God's reconciliation with people. You can't possibly be right with Almighty God without Christ. There's a certain tragedy to that reality when we think about the global situation around us, the world itself. A world of religious people, really. Yes, there's lots of secular in the West, and that's a religion of itself, but there's a lot of people pursuing some sort of divinity. Probably in the billions. Now, the truth of the matter is you can't be right with God outside of what Christ has done for us. So, so we looked at who Christ is last week, and verse 20 of that text gives us a look at what Christ has done. And what we're going to see today is how badly we were, how badly off we were in verses 21, and what the Father is willing to do in verse 22, and then what, how we must apply it to our lives. So the application is going to come near the end. But I think we all agree that um, the relationship between God and humans has gone seriously wrong. In fact, as we understand that we were made in the image and likeness of God, that we recognize that that image has been significantly marred in our world to almost an unrecognizable place. So um, this sets for us the theological context for our Who's Your One campaign here. When you're thinking about the plight of people in this city who do not know God, today we're going to look at their situation and their solution. So I want you to be thinking about that as you think about the, 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 the scenario of the people who you are, who God is laying on your heart in the Who's Your One campaign. So the reality of Christ's work on the cross must be applied to our lives, and there's three reasons why that's so, and I want to look at them this morning. The first reason is this. It's found in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, or better translated, shown by your evil behavior. Now, the first reason why we need to apply what Christ has done is that without God, your grim past will have an even grimmer future. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning 
as your own Lord and Savior, then your present past or your present story is grim and will get even grimmer. That, that's what we learn from this text. If you're looking for an explanation for the, for the why as to, to the way things are around us, it's, you have to look no further than this particular verse. This is the plight of humanity. This is the urgency of, of people you know and love and care about or our neighbors or co-workers who don't know the Lord. This is the, the grim reality of their lives. We, we have to have in our lives a profound sense of the urgency of lostness in our world before we will ever have a burden in our hearts for those who don't know the Lord. And so, West Highland, I urge you to, to, to soak in this reality and, 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 and personalize it. This, this was your case. This is who you were. We, we, need, to, we need to embrace the contrast this morning of, of what we were and what God has done for us and marvel at it all over again to, to come here this morning with thanksgiving and to be encouraged by, by what God has done for us. Once you, this is very personal, this isn't like an a, 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 a impersonal global statement. This is very personalized. Once you, you can put your name in there. Once you, once Rick was alienated from God. And the, the, the sense of this is your very being, you, the, the who you are, the, your being is actually completely disconnected from the great I am being because of sin. The, we as living beings were, sep were separated, disconnected, alienated from the giver of life, the ultimate being because of our sin. Some people say, oh, I just always was a Christian. No, you weren't. No one was always just a Christian. You may have been saved at a very, very young age. But the plight and the state of every human being who is born in this world is first this. Once you were alienated, completely disconnected from God, you lived your life as if God were dead to you because that's what sin is. You killed God in your life in favor of choosing sin. You treated him as if he were not alive. That's why the wages of sin is death. It's a capital offense. In your heart, you committed theocide or deicide. They're the same words, but... That, that's, what, that's what the reality of humanity is. Committers of theocide. Because we chose sin rather than God. That's the, the plight of every single person. There, there's a person today who is lost. There's no intersection point with God any day of their lives. It's a serious situation. They're never on God's page. And it gets worse. Not only were you alienated from God, but you were enemies in your minds. 
Sin so twisted your mind and increased your depraved thinking so as to be entirely hostile toward righteous things. The word that's translated enemies here in your text is the word hostile. It also can be translated enemies, but it's, it, that's what an enemy is. That's why we ask the question, are you at peace with God? Because outside of knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're hostile. You're an enemy of God. Your mind itself increasingly becomes more and more twisted. Sin takes on further and further control of your life. God's ways seem actually alien, Ail literally alien to people who don't know him. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You're shaking your heads day after day in disbelief. I can't believe the way people are living. I can't believe the way people are thinking. They, they, what, what seems abundantly obvious as right, they see as wrong. And what abundantly seems wrong, like what's obviously wrong to us, they see as right. That's the plight of the lost mind. That's the plight of the mind that is hostile toward God, given over to depraved thinking. The Apostle Paul, um, in writing to the Romans, is picking up this same thought. He says in Romans chapter 1, he writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and, and, and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts and then he gives three things that their sinful desires have been sort of a staging platform to cause to happen by, by uh, being abandoned in their thinking by God, degrading their bodies to shameful lusts and to depraved mind. Sinful desires are the staging platform for egregious behavior from which God, God's ab abandonment commences. This is why some suggest that you can live your life desiring sin as long as you don't sin. That's a really, really dangerous place to be. Desiring sin is the staging platform for moving into all kinds of depraved behavior. We are people of contrast. We're not people desiring sin. We're people desiring God. Because you'll see in how Paul moves this, you move from sin twisting your mind to act of hostility in the darkened mind led by immoral idolatry, which is evil behavior. You see it here? Once you were, first of all, alienated from God, and then you were enemies in your minds, and as your minds became more and more enemies of God, it moves into evil behavior. Because humans were made to worship. We will worship something. And in the case of those whose minds have become depraved and twisted by, by their desire for sin, ultimately start worshiping things that make them feel better. 
And so that's immoral idolatry. And anyone, by the way, who threatens to remove the gods of self or sex or substances in the world around us deserves to die. We as believers in the world of twisted thinking are considered dangerous by those who are hostile toward God. Now, we lived for a long time in Canada without really experiencing this like we're experiencing it now. The simple reality is, once twisted thinking is normalized in a person's mind, it always leads to wicked behavior. Deeds prove, wicked deeds prove a settled state. So that's the plight. That, that's the first step in answering our question, why would I need to be reconciled to God? Why would I need to be at peace with God? Because everyone outside of Jesus Christ is an enemy of God. The Bible has so many of these turning points that are so wonderful. And this is now one of them in verse 22. But now, once you were, drink deeply of this this morning, beloved. Once you were, and as you think through your own life, but now, look at, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God has provided a way to remove hostility between you and God. But now, the only cure for this human madness of of treating God as if he were dead, being hostile, an enemy toward him, of an alienated heart. The only cure to this is God himself. You can't come to God. God comes to you. Do you see this? He has reconciled you. God has made peace with you. That's what the text tells us. In fact, if we jump back a few verses in verse 20, um, well, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself, reconcile to himself. God reconciled to himself through the work of Christ all things, whether things on, and on it goes. God has made this possible. Jesus presented this very truth in parable form in Luke chapter 15. Remember the parable of the three lost things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And in that parable, the lost son stands in for all those who are hostile toward God. The lost son says to his father, give me my inheritance now. Now, when is it that you get an inheritance? You get an inheritance once someone dies. 
Literally, the lost son was saying to his father, to his face, I'm going to treat you as if you're dead. So give me my inheritance now. That's the picture of us. That's the picture of lostness. That's the picture of what, what Paul has painted here in verse 21. The hostile enemy mind toward God. But we learn in this text that God has mercifully made peace with you. He has reconciled you. That's what reconciled literally means. Making peace, changing hostility to peace. You once were gone, but now he has reconciled you. God's made peace with you. You and I had offended God. We alienated, hostile, acting out in evil behavior, unreconcilable in our present state outside of Christ. So how then did we become able to be reconciled? How, how did that happen? That, that's a crucial question. Remember the prodigal son in Luke 15. Go back to the prodigal son. He came to his senses, it says. How did that happen? Well, only God can cause us to come to our senses. He came to his senses, but he came to his, he came to his senses and he said, I know what I'm going to do. Make me like one of your hired men, Father. <laughs> that, that's always the human solution back to God. Let me work my way back to you, God. That's, that's the religions of the world. Hired people of God. <laughs> they think their labor and their work is going to save them. Let, let me just be a hired man. Is that what the father did? Did the father and the prodigal son, yeah, that's fine, you be the hired man. No, 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 no. And while he was a long way off, it says in the text, while he was a long way off, outside of the camp, the father ran to him and threw the son's garments on him. You're not a hired man. You're my son. And the crux interpretum, as they say in theology, is this in that text, for this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. The father went for him. And so we have in this text the explanation of how I can be reconciled to God. Christ's bodily death. You see it here? But he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Christ's bodily death was the price of justice to remove the obstacle to reconciliation. We call this a substitutionary sacrifice. Through Christ, by Christ's physical body. Not a spiritual thing, not an imagery thing. A real bodily death to be an atoning sacrifice. To pay the penalty to, that the debt might be canceled for us. That we might be able to be forgiven. The debt was paid by Christ for us. That we might be able to be forgiven. 
and then reconciled to God. The reason God can reconcile is the offended party has been propitiated. <laughs> That's the word that simply says the wrath of God has been diverted. God is no longer at wrath. He's, its wrath has been turned away. The formerly, formerly hostile relationship God we had with God has been turned away. And now we have been in possession of the perfect righteousness of Christ. The cloak that the father, the prodigal father, threw around his son has been thrown around us, the garment of the son of Jesus Christ. We exchanged our sins on the cross for the garment of Christ that the father might reconcile us. And we, it says here, that we, uh, that we, he, we are now presented to him holy in his sight. Holy, unblemished, irreproachable. The contrast is, is stunning. We have gone from being hostile, enemies, alienated, wicked behavior, twisted minds, to being inspected by a holy God who looks at us and sees us holy, unblemished, irreproachable. Many of us have spent our whole lives trying to measure up to somebody, to measure up for somebody's approval. Often our father or some other figure in our life that really matters. And some people are crippled by that. I want you to know something today, beloved. That you are entirely, completely accepted by God the Father through what Jesus Christ has done for you. He sees you as holy, unblemished, irreproachable. You measure up fully because of what Christ has done for you. Here's a few P's for you. Perfect positionally, progressively being perfected practically. That's who you and I are. We're perfect positionally, progressively being perfected practically. But upon his inspection, you measure up. For a sacrifice in the Old Testament to be acceptable, the priest had to inspect it. This is the language. We're using sacrificial language here. You can't miss it, right? You can't miss it. When you see holy, unblemished, any intersection you ever make with the Old Testament, you'll surely see this as sacrificial language. This is, this is priest inspection of the offering. You are an unblemished offering to God through Jesus Christ. So, what now? Finally, what's the practical takeaway here? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, when I first, first read this, 
in a way it took away my confidence. Just, just a bit. You know, I was excited. I was reading once I was alienated from God. It was a mess. How bad was it? It was very, very bad. And then I read, but now it's very, very good. I've been reconciled to God. God has reconciled me to himself. And I'm holy and without blemish and free from accusation. I don't like the word if. Now, in the full body of theology, we need to understand what this if really means. Because if could look like there's a big condition that I have to, I have to stay good, I have to work this out, or I, I could be gone. That's not, what, that's not what we're looking at here this morning, folks. The simple truth is that divine provision does not preclude human responsibility. That God does for us does not negate the cooperation that we must put into our own salvation as well. But, but I fully believe that this means this. You must continue to passionately apply yourself to your relationship with Christ, granted to you free by His grace, as proof that you've been reconciled to God. This, this, is another, this is another place of encouragement. How can I be encouraged today? How, how, can, I, how can I be strengthened today with confidence that I have been reconciled by God to himself. How can I be confident of that? This answers that question. You and I can be confident that we have been reconciled by God to himself by our steadfast perseverance in the truth and in faith and in righteous living. It's not a condition of our salvation. It's a proof of our salvation. It's evidence of our salvation. I, listen, salvation is so important to us. It's so important to me that I, I never stop thinking about wanting to be confident that I know the Lord and that I belong to Him. I don't want to... I, I always want to have a confidence with that. And, and there, there's always thoughts coming into to your mind you know, this is so important. This is so crucial. This is so critical. We can't be wrong about this. This is of eternal importance. I wonder if I'm really saved. I wonder if I, I, wonder if I really belong to the family of God. And then the enemy starts chirping away. Oh, I don't know. You didn't have a very good week. So where's, where does our confidence lie? It can't lie on whether or not we have a very good week or not. That's a pretty weak salvation. God has reconciled you and me through Christ's work. So what does it look like? Like everything else in theology of, of salvation, you don't save yourself, but... Your salvation proves genuine by how you live. The application is this. Since we have been reconciled, how ought we to live? And there's three quick things here. One, continue to trust in Christ alone as completely sufficient for your salvation. Do you see this? 
if you continue in your faith. Some would translate it the faith. The faith that is your faith. Continue to trust. What is the faith? The faith is that we can't save ourselves. The faith is that Christ has done everything that was needed to be done. Our role in that is to simply trust that what Christ has done is sufficient for our eternal salvation. And by the reconciling work of God in our lives and the relationship that he has instilled in us and the Holy Spirit that he has placed in us continues to convince us that we can trust in Christ alone for our salvation. That yes, 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 I believe. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him. But that believe is not just believing that Jesus exists or that Jesus died on a cross. It is trust belief. Because the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross. It is trust belief. Is that I trust that what Christ has done is enough. We sang it. This, you, you all sang it with robust voices. Christ is enough for me. Is he? He is, absolutely. Christ is enough. Your salvation and your rescue did not come from you. It didn't come from your works. It didn't come from how you dress on a Sunday. It didn't come from what you did this past week. So don't fret about all that kind of stuff. Your salvation came because of Christ's work for you. And the gracious invitation of God to receive salvation. And you will be, you will be kept by Christ because your confidence is in the righteousness of Christ alone that now covers you. But it has to be your faith. You don't get grandfathered into salvation by your family's faith. You don't get brought into salvation by your membership to West Highland. It's not a group faith. It's your faith. Secondly, in application, you have to keep renewing your mind. How do you stay established and firm and not moved? Because there's a lot of competition out there for our thinking. In fact, it's, it's, it's convicting. When you do a, an inventory of how much time you spend being shaped by God things in a given week versus how much time you spend being inundated by everybody else's ideas, and most of them are very, very bad today. Didn't Paul say in Romans 12, stop being conformed to this world, pressed into the mold of this world. In other words, stop. You are being conformed. Now stop it. Stop allowing. And there's only one way to stop being conformed to this world. And that is by what? The renewing of your mind so that you're being shaped constantly by truth, righteousness, the right ways of God, the, the character and nature of God, being shaped, shaped, shaped by God. To stave off the drift 
that will take you away and cause you to lack confidence and security. And those who belong to God, those who've been reconciled to him, will do just that. You will renew your mind. You will be a living sacrifice. You will continue to grow. And then finally, you see established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. What gospel? The gospel that you heard. That's the same gospel proclaimed all over the place, all throughout the world. It's the same gospel. If you visit Christianity anywhere in the world, they will tell you the same thing I told you this morning. It's the same gospel. So you persevere to the end, not moved, immovable. You can't be moved because you are the real thing, because God has saved you that rests in a consistent message that you heard from the beginning. And you have total confidence in the same truth that you have heard since you first came to know Christ that's proclaimed everywhere. It's called the gospel. It's called the good news. And you won't be dissuaded from it. You won't be moved from it. Beloved, it's not how you start the journey. It's that you finish the journey living by the gospel living the truth of the gospel. The enemy can't steal your soul, but he can try to steal your hope, and he does. Our hope is held for us in heaven on the basis of the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Regardless of how bad the situation is in your life, the glorious gospel does not change. That Christ saves you by the work that he did for you and holds you firm till the end. Regardless of what anyone else says to you, you are held firmly by him. And this gospel has put you in a position with God whereby he sees you as holy and unblemished and measuring up. There are so many believers who live defeated lives because they are continually haunted by the failures of their past. God is never looking at the failures of your past. Never. We are victors in the, pres in the present forgiveness that we have in Christ. We live in the constant victory of our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. Does that give us license to sin? No, Paul already got in front of that one. Should we continue to sin that grace might more abound? That's, that's foolish thinking. And, and no one who's been graced by Christ would even want to do that. Nobody graced with Christ wants to continue to sin. We want to go, get as far away from sin as we can. So I encourage you, don't allow your hope to be stolen because the glorious gospel remains true, and the enemy will continue to cross 
bring up old posts on the Facebook of your mind page, and then it's time for a fact check. The fact check is that God examines you in Christ, and he finds you holy, unblemished, irreproachable. And someday you will stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God, and you will stand acquitted of any accusations, not because of your life, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Father, I pray this morning with great thanksgiving for the reconciling work of the Heavenly Father through the incredible sacrificial work of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that made it possible for us to have peace with God and to have our hope secured in heaven. And so, Father, I pray this morning that, number one, our hearts might be exercised at the plight of the lost around us, that we might be grateful for the rescue of our own souls that didn't deserve the least of your favor, and that we might apply to our lives, O oh Lord, the implications of reconciliation. We are at peace with God. O oh God, cause us to live out that peace with you, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Listen, beloved, to this exciting news. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, if you are here today without Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, to the glory of God. Father, thank you this morning for your rich, rich truth to us, your grace in salvation, your willingness to reconcile, to make peace with us. Oh, Father, we thank you this morning. We pray, Father, if there's someone here or listening uh, over, the, um, over online, Father, who today has been arrested where they are and their heart has been turned toward the truth, I pray, O oh God, that you might be pleased to draw those who don't presently know you into this marvelous salvation for your glory's sake, I pray. And for us who know you, O oh Lord, may we treasure you to an even greater degree, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.